and welcome to Circumstantial Failures. My name is Matthew, your host, and we meet with various fantastic guests every week who have been kind enough to share some personal experiences that haven't quite gone according to plan. And also to highlight why such experiences weren't to do with any personal shortcomings, but more to do with some of the circumstances around them at the time. I'm super grateful to be joined today by Tanya Luna. Tanya's background is in psychology, and at the point she was choosing to complete her PhD, she decided to start her own business instead. Tanya went on to co-found Life Labs Learning, which helps train managers, executives, and teams to create more harmonious workplaces. Life Labs Learning has since helped over 350,000 people from a whole range of companies, including Slack, Reddit, Tinder, and Squarespace. Tanya is also the author of the best-selling and highly acclaimed book, The Leader Lab, which provides managers with a Swiss army knife of skills that help them handle the toughest of situations. She is also a columnist on psychology today and is a TED Talk speaker, so pretty much knows everything there is to know about business and psychology. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you. Everything I've learned, I've learned through making mistakes. So I feel like I found my home on this podcast. Oh, that's great. Um, So I just wanted to ask about yourself first before we go on about all the things that you know. Um, So what made you decide to leave kind of formal academia and start your own business instead of continuing with your studies and and doing your PhD? Oh, yeah. I would say, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the real answer, and then I'll give you the rationalized answer I <laughs> later. <laughs> the real answer is that I could picture my path as an academic because I had spent my entire academic life since I was in my freshman year in college doing research. I was a research assistant. I led research myself from a very early age. I was you know, publishing, blah, blah, blah. And I could picture that path. And I would, I imagine myself at this moment. So my, my team and I, who came up with this business idea, we won this young entrepreneur contest and it wasn't even that much money. It was $10,000, but in my mind, it was $10 million. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, really good. Yeah. So, so I'm looking down this kind of path in my mind of, we walked down the path of entrepreneurship and I couldn't picture it. It was like this dark, dim corridor. And then I, think of my mind walking down the path of academia and it was this brightly lit, beautiful, clear path where I can like see for miles and miles. And the truth is I chose the path of entrepreneurship because I didn't know what was down that hallway. And that's, I think the real reason I can give you my rationalized reason, but I'll start with the honest. Yeah, go on. I'm interested. Well, I'm interested now that you chose the dark path. So what was the rationalized reason? So I think the rationalized reason was I can always come back and finish my PhD later. And I felt that, well, you know what, what will my PhD get me? Actually, I talked to the researchers that I had been working with and I said, what did your PhD get you? And they were like, well, we got to teach. And I was like, but I'm teaching now. And they were like, yeah, well, we got to publish. And I was like, but I'm publishing now. And they were like, well, we got to consult. And I was like, wait, but I'm consulting now. (laughs) (laughs) So then I just checked for myself and I was like, you know, to what extent is this about a means to an end or is it an end in and of itself? And, you know, there's something like that that's like ego uplifting about having a PhD and and having doctor at the beginning of my name and all that kind of stuff. Um, So I told myself if that's important, 
I'll come back to that and it'll probably always be there. And so far I have not come back to it <laughs> and I don't see a path where I'm going to come back to it. I, yeah. I think I've, I've really enjoyed the love academia, but much more fine a fit for myself in the swiftness and um, kind of boundlessness of business. Yeah. I mean, how did you initially feel when you, when you took that decision to leave academia? I mean, how was, what was the reaction from those who were close to you? Were they like, oh, why are you not doing this? this is, Nobody this is was surprised. I literally, oh. everyone that I had, even people whose like research I was a part of, they were like, go, run, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> it was just the people I was around. The other thing I should clarify is, you know, I was already looking at organizational psychology. So I had studied other things. Like I'd studied the psychology of surprise for a long time, emotion regulation, group creativity. I even had a stint in uh, childhood assertiveness, all sorts of things. But because I was already studying organizational psychology, it wasn't like a leap off a cliff. It was more like a step off of a hill, you know, into yeah. the applied aspects of it. So I didn't get a lot of pushback. Um, and also, I should say, I am a really terrible student. I'm dyslexic. I am really bad at following rules. <laughs> oh, no. But dyslexia is not determines how good a student you are. Um it is well it, it makes it challenging definitely it makes it challenging i would say it is really hard to be a good dyslexic student in a very structured made for more let's say neurotypical brain yeah, environment yeah, yeah. It, it in no way hinders my learning but it hinders my ability to be a good student so i think the people who knew that i like suffered in places where i had a lot of structure and had to literally read a lot of books uh yeah. that you know, I still read a lot, but I use Speechify, which is a, a it reads for me, basically, yeah. which is an amazing app. Um, so I still I love to learn. I love to take in it, information. But the academic route, I think, at, at least at the time, was a little too structured for my brain. Yeah, no. OK, no, that sounds fair enough. Um, and so going on to kind of, you know, the things that you the things that you do at Life Lab Learning, um, what are some of the differences between managers who start their own businesses and those that work within large organizations? Um, mm. And do you have a different approach towards those managers? Uh, can you see them coming a mile off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say when someone is a founder of their organization, the focus almost always tends to be external. It tends to be on what is our product? What is our vision? What is our marketing plan? Where's the money coming from, right? That is incredibly, incredibly important, but it misses out on the question of, okay, I've brought other people along this journey with me. How do I build up their capacity to be able to achieve amazing things? It's quite challenging sometimes working with passionate founders to let them release control and let them release that power that they're sort of concentrated within themselves because they truly are the best person for the job. But it's limiting because there's only so much you can achieve on your own. So if you're going to bring other people in along your journey, you need to have the discipline and the, the guts to be able to let go of control enough so that their power grows exponentially. And that means your power grows exponentially, but it starts paradoxically with releasing some of that power. I think managers hired in also have that challenge, but not nearly is it as painful as it is with founders. Yeah. Yeah. I, would you say um, individuals who 
start businesses are possibly more prone to overlooking the importance of good management and good leadership? Or is that a bit too harsh on? Yeah, I don't know. I will, what I would say is that um, I don't know if it's about founder versus not founder. I think it's about subject matter expert mindset versus people capacity building mindset. Uh, you know, I think there are plenty of managers who were hired into the manager role simply because they were the best at what they did as an individual contributor. That makes no sense. It's like saying, hey, you're an amazing surgeon. Now, instead of being a surgeon, go support other surgeons in being surgeons. Like it's just a completely different skill set. So I think that in many ways, the better you are at your individual contributor role, the harder it is to have, again, I would say like really like the, the guts to release that control and that perfectionism and have the delay of gratification that happens when instead of you achieving amazing results, you help people build the skills and the confidence to be able to achieve incredible results that are bigger than what you could achieve on your own. So yes, I think the founder piece of it makes it harder to let go, but it is a similar pain that I see among very skilled subject matter experts or very talented people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And 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 have you found, you know, sort of businesses that are, that are smaller um, can be tougher places to work in or does the size or, or age of the business, so, you know, more traditional um established business does does it not really make any impact on on the quality of management or or what it mm. is to work in that kind of environment yeah that's interesting i i think that you know from a culture perspective what we tend to see is after about 150 employees that's often referred to as the dunbar number engagement starts to drop off because there isn't that same sense of closeness communication gets harder and harder um in fact i would say most businesses start to feel that communication crunch once they pass the, you know, some people use the, the two pizza test. You know, if you I've can share that, yeah. two pizzas with your, with your team, you're probably still fine. You can sit around a digital table together or a real table together and work it all out. Once you get larger, it gets harder. Once you get to 150 and, and larger, it gets even harder. Um, so I think size um, is working against us with growth when it comes to a sense of community and an ease of communication. Your skill set and your deliberateness in building a sense of belonging and inclusion and building a sense of clarity and alignment really needs to grow as your organization grows. On the other hand, what I see in really small organizations is the focus is so much on just getting things done and surviving that it's very rare that you can step back and go, well, what skills would you like to develop? You know, how, <laughs> how would you like to grow as an individual? And most people think you get the best learning from experience, but unfortunately, that's just not true. Experience is a very bad teacher unless it tells you, here's what you did that worked and here's what you did that didn't work. That's why I think like your work is so important because it's stepping back to actually extract lessons learned. But most of us, like when we study managers at LifeOps Learning, not our managers, but the managers that we that we both study and we teach, what we find is that there's no correlation between years of management experience and quality and effectiveness of management experience. So if you haven't been taught how to do this role well, experience can actually reinforce really bad habits because experience doesn't immediately tell you when you did that thing, that was really bad. Don't do that again. Uh, so I would say, you know, getting larger some of the benefits there, if you take advantage of that size of that scale are to be much more deliberate about, hey, let's actually grow our skills versus just get things done. Yeah, I, 
I mean, that kind of touches on a question I was I was going to ask. Um, you know, I read recently about how um, employees with aggressive managers can go on to to mirror that behavior or, or mm. there generally is a, a more aggressive sort of culture between colleagues generally. Um, is that mm. is that something you've come across yourself? Is that is that? Yeah, is that a thing? <laughs> we haven't studied that ourselves. Um, what I will say is, you know, there's there's this concept of emotional contagion in the field of psychology, um, which is particularly pronounced among people with formal authority or informal leadership or informal, you know, influence. So, for better or worse, if I'm if I'm in a position of power, the way that I behave even if you don't want to, if I have some sort of either institutional or kind of influential power over you, you are going to start to mirror that. So if I'm in a great mood, everyone's going to be a little, little bit more of a better mood. If I'm in a terrible mood, other people will be in a terrible mood. That's about the emotion piece. So if I'm constantly aggressive and stressed, that's going to trickle across the organization. But there's also social learning is one of the most powerful forms of learning for human beings. If you look at all the research on what accelerates learning, that's what we're so passionate about at Life Labs, not just what we teach, but how we teach it. And we really focus on how do you help people become managers and teams become effective faster. And what we know is that learning from each other and being able to see the behavior in action, you know, people say like monkey see, monkey do. Yes, <laughs> we need to be able to see it. And we need that positive social pressure to be able to continue doing those positive things. Now, if I have someone in a position of power in my organization and they're modeling behaviors that ultimately lead to mistrust, to confusion, to fear, to bullying, any of those things, um, that might just be one individual in the organization, but the toxicity of that is massive because then it sort of poisons the waters of the organization. On the flip side, you have someone who is great at listening, asking questions, being able to create alignment without relying on just, you know, dictating rules and other people are go, Oh, okay. Now I understand how to do that. And I'm going to do that. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, and I mean, are there certain industries or sectors which you generally find have positive or sometimes less positive reputations when it comes to good leadership? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I said banking, you know, I'm yeah, like, joking. I'm joking. You said it. I didn't say no, it. No, 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 no. Uh, there are yes, many yes. great bankers out there. Are there reputations? Yes. Right. Like there, there are for sure reputations. <laughs> are those reputations realities? I think it, it's the same as any stereotype, right? Like sometimes stereotypes come from the, the fact that you've just been exposed to a certain um, frequency or intensity of a certain type. And then your brain is like, well, that's, that must be what I expect. Like, I'll be honest, we worked at Life Labs Learning, like some, some of the clients you named are in tech. We, some of our yeah. first clients were in that kind of startup tech environment where it's really hard to hire and retain people. And as a result, these companies are like, we're going to create the most amazing workplaces ever because it's really hard to find people and it's really hard to keep people here. So we were kind of spoiled by our first clients because we were like, you love people, right? Like you want to create an amazing, yeah, well, you want to achieve results, but you also want to create this amazing experience where humans flourish. And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's totally what we want. So when we started branching out to other industries, we did go into it, you know, going back to my corridor metaphor, like we kind of opened that door and slipped through it like one gradual foot at a time, but we've been completely wrong. You know, we have companies we work with in finance, in professional services and in, you know, law firms, um, insurance companies, um, in the healthcare industry, we heard really scary things about, you know, 
you have to go fast. There's no time to pause. There's no time to care about the people on the inside. You only care about the people on the outside. And I've been moved to tears sometimes working within these organizations and seeing the extreme amount of care and passion and compassion that's in there. Um, in many ways, these organizations are just more deprived of and, and starved of those development resources that allow them to simplify the complexity of leadership. It's painful to lead when you don't know how. Um, so when you're given those resources, collaboration, communication, you know, inclusion, team effectiveness, when, when you can quickly see improvements in that, it's just the most amazing sigh of relief that you kind of resonate, resonates across the organization. So uh, yeah, that's my, my positive spin on your answer. No, yes, no, that's great. but I've learned not to trust the stereotype. That's really good. And, and can I just go and just clarify what, what it was that, that meant there was quite a high turnover with some of those initial clients that you worked with? High turnover. Oh no. The, so the, so what I was saying is that within the tech industry, uh, the job market for engineering talent is very tight. So everyone's trying to like oh, fight over the small the yeah, talent pool. pool. Um, which shouldn't be small. I think there are incredible talent gaps in the world where you know, a lot, I'm also part of this organization called eLab through Columbia University, where we uh, provide support for um, ed tech startups that are trying to make education more equitable and accessible. Um, so there are lots of organizations working to create, like stop the nonsense of a talent uh, small talent pool. Like there should be no such thing as a small talent pool. There are so many people that need jobs, so many people that are smart and capable. So, but the reality is that there is a scarcity of individuals you can hire in to your organization, particularly in engineering. You see this with lots of other roles, but for us, we kind of, when we started Life Labs Learning, that's where there was the most scarcity. And so one of the reactions to that within the companies we serve is going, well, we have to make ourselves the best place to work because yeah. these people can work anywhere. How can we make them want to work here? And it's not pay. That, that pay is not going to be enough. It's going to matter, but it's not going to be enough. Um, and so in many ways, we were set up for success with these organizations because we wanted to make sure that they were creating amazing workplaces and they wanted to be creating amazing workplaces. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I guess this is quite an important question is how you help managers and teams handle failure or, or just situations that haven't quite worked out as they expected or hoped? Yeah. So we actually use a methodology within our workshops. So we do live workshops, digital and in-person. We do digital nudges and tools and things like that as well. But the live piece, one of the things I love is we use a methodology called error learning so or error-based learning. So within the workshop, we want to set people up for at least a little bit of failure. Ideally, they're going to practice, for example, giving feedback, and they're going to screw it up. We're not making them screw it up. <laughs> we're going to screw it up all on their own. <laughs> Sorry, if you could hear my dog barking. Perfect. Oh, no. <laughs> Failure win. <laughs> Just all coming together nicely. <laughs> I'm just hoping for some, some screw-ups in this conversation. So tell me if you want me to take care of it. I don't think I can hear it, but it'll probably come yeah. nicely through on the speaker, I'm sure. So <laughs> I, I can listen back to it when the episode goes live. <laughs> okay. Uh, ah, where should I start? Should, should I go back? Sorry about that. No, no, no. Car no, honestly, you're all good. <laughs> 
you were asking me um, yeah you were you were saying about sort of um sort of helping people and teams sort of deal with failure, deal with and, failure and, yeah 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 and yes okay all right okay i'm back okay Boop. so <laughs> so we use a methodology called error-based learning within our workshops to set people up for at least a little pocket of failure within the live learning experience that is so important because as humans our brains are designed to be predicting machines. And so we need a little bit of failure to get that, you know, reaction in our brains that tells us, hang on, I have to learn from this. So I don't make this mistake again. So to answer your question, this, the first thing is we set them up for failure within the workshop so they can quickly in a safe environment where the stakes are very low, um, you know, get a little bit of that dose of, well, that didn't work so that they can course correct and quickly learn a better way. Now, in terms of learning from failure in general, you know, I think failure, as long as you're seeing it as data toward a path to success is awesome. It's sometimes really frustrating to be in a situation where you're constantly succeeding because you don't know if it's you, if it's luck, if it's the environment, like what is it? So for example, we really focus on feedback skills, both to learn from what's working and to learn from what's not working. It's one of the things managers struggle with most. And it's one of the biggest game changers when you see managers and teams really feel that confidence and competence in exchanging feedback quickly. Um, and it's also about really good question skills when it comes to learning from the past. Um, so for example, doing retros, we know that teams that pause to do retros significantly outperform teams that don't. Uh, you yeah. even see this in Ret health Retrospectives. Retrospectives. So basically pausing to say, what can we learn from that experience? Yeah. Um, so medical teams, for example, that do retrospectives uh, kill fewer people accidentally <laughs> than medical teams that don't. So if you're going to have surgery, ask your, <laughs> your medical team, hey, do you have a habit of doing retrospectives? It is incredible how much faster your team can learn. Yes, there's a skill side, which is what Life Labs Learning provides, but there's also the ritual side of let's pause as a team and on a continuous basis, let's extract from what has worked. And also let's make sure that those failures paid off. Those failures are like free PhDs that the world has given us and make sure we're not leaving those learnings you know, behind and taking them into the future. Yeah. Um, and and at Life Labs Learning, you selected the the way you kind of started it. You you selected the best managers to find out what they did differently to everyone else. Um, would you be happy sharing some of what you found out and how Life Lab Learning implements that research? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, well, one of the things we found out is that if you ask people who are rated as the best managers within the organizations what do you think you do differently? And you ask people who are rated as average, they tell you the same things. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So most people who are either good or either average, first of all, aren't sure whether they're good or average. Second of all, they don't know what it is that they're doing. Like, for example, everyone we interviewed said listening is really important. And how good people thought they were at listening was not a predictor of how good other people thought they were at listening. <laughs> so yeah. I will say... Number one methodology to not use is to ask people, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, what did work was actually observing people and starting to code their behavior. And that's where the research background in psychology, minus the PhD, although Leanne Renninger, who's my co-founder, she has a very legitimate PhD. Oh, she went all the way. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I always say I'm like, I'm the least educated person at Life Labs Learning. 
but you know, it, it worked out. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we, we, you know, coding behaviors, observing what is it that managers do differently. Um, and I guess in the interest of time, the, the main thing I'll say is that we got down to the level of what we call the behavioral unit or the BU. What are the really tangible, visible behaviors? Um, and they're so small and so discreet that you can teach them very quickly because leadership is very hard to learn if you say things like, well, just create safe space. And you're like, what? <laughs> How do I do that? Or just inspire, just create trust. Just inspire like, people. What? <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Just, we assume that because we're human, we can figure this stuff out. No, someone like, you wouldn't just stick someone in a car and go, go ahead, you figure it out. Right? It's like, no, the stakes are really high. So let's give it the proper you know, gravity of deliberate learning. Um, so we, so we found these small behavioral units. Uh, and then what we realized is those small behavioral units kind of like stack together into what we call tipping point skills. We were really excited to find this because we are both very impatient people. And we were really hoping that it wouldn't take years and years to become a great manager. <laughs> and what we found is that there were eight skills that we call tipping point skills that tip over into so many other domains. For example, one of the main skills that we teach is coaching skills. Uh, when you become really good at coaching, so bringing out the best in others, helping people solve their own problems, it also helps you become more innovative because you're asking better questions. It also helps you resolve conflict faster. Uh, it also helps you with um, skill development. So yeah, we can teach people to be good problem solvers and to solve conflict and to be creative, or we can just teach them coaching skills and it just tips over into all these other domains. Um, yeah. So what we found is coaching skills, feedback, prioritization, effective one-on-ones, strategic thinking, leading meetings, leading change, and people development, especially through a kind of a systems lens. So not just one-on-one -on -one conversations, but how do you develop a team? How do you develop your entire group? Um, and we're, those skills have been very, very resilient. We've studied them cross-culturally. We've looked at meta-analyses done by other researchers. And again and again, we find those things. So that so we, we do other things aside from that. But if we're starting with an organization, it is more often the case than not that those are the places where the fire is burning and we have to start there. And then you're like, okay, now let's focus on you know working remotely or now let's focus on delivery skills, public speaking, things like that. But like start with the core skills. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry, Tay. We don't have like that. You you let you rattled those off, and they were all brilliant in their own. So play back the this episode and, <laughs> and, and jot them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I was just going to ask: Are there are there certain people who you work with? Um, you know, maybe due to their background or their circumstances, who are who are more likely to struggle with the skills that you're teaching. I would say, you know, some, a lot of it has to do with, uh, again, I would come back to how important is it for you to, um, keep power within your, yourself, <laughs> you know, versus share the power with others. So it, it, we often think of management, it actually is a synonym for control, which is why I like, like, oh, I wish we had a better word for it. Um, we really say it's, it's not about managing people, it's about managing conditions. The more controlling someone is, the harder their experience is going to be as a manager, because it is truly about you being a multiplier, not you being a doer. Uh, some of that has to do with 
personality. Some of it has to do with how you were raised. Some of it has to do with even geographic culture, right? Like, are you a high power or high power distance or low power distance culture in terms of where you are in the world? Um, and I will say that uh, anyone can get better at these things if they want to. I don't think everyone should be a manager. I don't think everyone should be in a leadership role. Absolutely not. It's not like it's like inherently good to do. It's just a thing to do that's really important to do really well. So I'd say these are skills anyone can develop as long as they want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that was going to, that, yeah, again, touches into the next question is, I mean, have you ever said to somebody, you know, you, you, you'd be better at, you know, as a manager within a big organization, you probably shouldn't go out and, and try and start your own company managing mm. you know, a small group of people. Have I ever crushed anyone's dreams? Is that your <laughs> In a word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I have. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if I had the opportunity to, what I, what I do do is I ask questions when people say, I want to start a company. Should I start a company? Or yeah. you know, I want to be a manager. Should I be a manager? I want to be uh, an entrepreneur. Should I be an entrepreneur? And there I just ask a lot of questions like what drives you? You know, what are you strongest at? What do people turn to you for help? What drains you? What, what do you like never want to do again? <laughs> so for me, for example, I was co-CEO at Life Labs Learning for a long time for seven years. Once we got to about 150 people, it was no longer right for me because it became so much about uh, maintaining systems. And it became about large meetings with lots of people. And I just noticed my energy draining. Um, and it's also not where I am best suited, but I am really well suited when there's chaos, when things are moving really fast, when there's a lot of uncertainty, that's where I know I shine. Um, so I think just really recognizing that there's no such thing as like, being an entrepreneur isn't inherently good. Being an employee isn't inher inherently good. It's just really being honest with yourself about when do I thrive? What do I need? If you want more clarity, if you want more consistency, if you want more certainty, probably starting a business is not <laughs> the place where you thrive. Right? Um, if you want the adrenaline rush, if you want if you have a little bit of an over obsession with responsibility, uh, if you want things to constantly be changing, then startup world, um, either as an early member or a founder could be great, but also recognize that's going to be different, you know, as the organization grows. And I would say you change and the situation changes. So I don't think there's such a thing as predicting what you're going to be when you grow up. I think we're in an environment now where the past doesn't predict the future. And so we just have to, you know, go in, get our feet wet, experiment and no hard feelings if it didn't work out and just move toward what is energizing us where there is both a need on our end and a need in the marketplace. Yeah, those those are great words. Thank you, Tanya, to, to end with. Um, so for everyone listening, if you're keen to improve your leadership skills, or if you feel your company will benefit from Life Labs Learning help, then you can get in contact with them at lifelablearning.com. Excuse me, I mispronounced the title. Mm -hmm. um, alternatively, if you'd rather digest Tanya's teachings, then you can check out her best-selling book, The Leader Lab. So thank you so much for your time today, Tanya. It's been an absolute oh, pleasure. pleasure. Same here. Thank you so much. And thank you to your dog. I don't know. <laughs> I'll let Rumble know. Rumble. Thank you, Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Yeah.